Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Okay, hello everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, I am joined by Elliot Carr, who is the Sanctuaries and Rescue Centers Coalition Lead Coordinator, Asia for Animals Coalition. Elliot, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on to the podcast, and and welcome. Thank you for having me. Don't worry, everyone gets stumped up with the Asia for Animals thing, and when I give you a bit of an introduction, it's going to make it even more confusing for everyone. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's lots of uh, similar sounding names out there, but uh, uh, for for people that don't know, uh, do you want to sort of talk about what uh, Asia for Animals Coalition is and 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 what what it does before we jump into your background a little bit? Certainly, yes. So at the crux, it's a networking organization. Uh, but it may be easier to tell you in how we formed in our history uh, so everyone can get a better idea of what we actually do. Um, so a great guy named Dave Neal, and this is where it gets confusing. Now, Dave Neal is the Animal Welfare Director at Animals Asia. Back in 2001, he launched Asia for Animals. Mm. This is where it starts getting confusing. Uh, and he realized right across the region of Asia, there needed to be more discussion about uh, animal, animal advocacy, animal protection issues at a regional level. So most of its life, we've been basically a networking and conference organization that uh, occasionally ran an appeal letter to governments or businesses in the sector on decisions that may have neg negatively impacted uh, animal welfare. Um, so essentially, we were just sort of creating a shared voice for animals and running a, a conference every two years. But moving forward to 2019, Dave really looked at AFA and what we're actually achieving. And I think maybe a lot of your listeners would understand that when you go to a conference, you get really super excited to talk about all these issues. And then you're like, we should collaborate on this and we should we should follow up on this. But then you get back to your own organization and you get inundated with your own work and none of that stuff in the middle actually happens. So Dave was like, well, let's reanalyze this. Let's start putting people onto the AFA team as its own organization um, and expand to fill this middle ground. So from one person in 2019, we are now 14 people across six countries uh, and are all running basically multiple different working groups. So uh, we act as sort of that middle facilitator for organizations to continue talking to each other. So we've got working groups that are looking at farm animal welfare, dogs and cats, macaque issues, a group that's demystifying policy because everyone gets mm. confused at policy stuff, uh, a really effective group working on social media and animal cruelty, uh, and we've now just launched a capacity enhancement group to look at some of those uh, the tools that you know organizations need to push their missions forward. Uh, and specifically, I work on wildlife sanctuary and rescue center issues. So I guess essentially we are a central point of contact for all animal protection and advocacy groups right across Asia. We facilitate or, or you know help facilitate on shared projects and working groups, taking that onus of busy organizations. Um, as well as identifying what are the issues multiple organizations are struggling with and seeing if we can find solutions. Uh, we still hold our conference every two years and write those shared appeal letters, um, but we've grown. As I said, we're, we're now 14 staff over six countries, and we're actually the largest animal advocacy organization in the world, 
and we've just gone over 300 member organizations. Oh, wow. Yeah, very cool. It's uh, yeah, it's a very impressive uh, sort of portfolio of companies that uh, uh, Asia for Animals uh, works with and collaborates with. It seems like uh, you guys are doing really fantastic, fantastic work. Very diverse. Yeah, and yeah. Like when you think of Asia, like our definition of Asia and our members are stretched from the Middle East to Russia, down mm. to Papua New Guinea, South Like It covers all of Asia. So it's a huge, diverse range of people and organizations, but yeah. all hoping to the, you know, help wildlife and, and, and really animals across the spectrum at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, it's really fantastic. And I'd love to, uh, talk, uh, more about some of those, what collaboration really looks like and, and some of the solutions you were talking about and, and problems. Do you want to sort of go a little bit into like your background and how you sort of got involved in, uh, this sort of sphere and, and, and sort of like what, what you actually like do, do in the company, what, what the job actually looks like. Yeah. So I guess to give a little bit of my history, I think like, like many people, I grew up wanting to be a zookeeper before I'd ever even been to a zoo basically. So absolutely animal obsessed. Um, and when I was a kid, there's lots of documentaries on TV of, mm. you know, people going to Asia and helping rescue wildlife. So I was like, when, when high school finishes, that's what I want to go to, you know, following these people's footsteps and then come back and become a zookeeper. But then once I was sort of in, you know, I went when I was 19 to South Africa and, and, and a few places in Asia and was like, oh, wow, this is this is where the work is. You know, this is the front lines of, of conservation and welfare and where these animals are being impacted by these issues. So I sort of didn't about face and and mm. since then I've always wanted to, to live and work in Asia. Um, so my background is uh, i've done my uh, bachelor's in animal science i've done animal tech degrees and have done a master's in conservation biology uh, but my first sort of foray into asia was working uh, at a rescue center in thailand and then over the last uh, on and off 10 years working in numerous different rescue centers across um, uh, thailand indonesia laos and vietnam uh, and then, you know, we had that little pandemic for a while, so I had to move back to Australia. And during that time, that's when I did my master's degree. Uh, and then while I was searching for jobs, I happened to be forwarded this one. And I was actually just before the pandemic volunteering for Animals Asia. Mm. Uh, and so I'd actually met the team from Asia for Animals uh, during the process of that position, uh, volunteering uh, with elephants in, at the amazing elephant project in southern Vietnam. Uh, and then that's basically how I landed this gig. Sometimes it's, I think I did a pretty good interview as well, but yeah. it's not what you know, it's often who you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's how I, I got into this position. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And, and you, you mentioned, uh, you know, like uh, sort of like a lot of Asia being that sort of front line. Like, why do you, why do you think that is? And what, like, what do you think, uh, what do you think the sort of, issues surrounding that like make it the sort of front line for this animal welfare conservation sphere i mean this is where like like i mean it's it's the highest rates of biodiversity loss is happening in, in mm. southeast asia booming populations and not just booming populations in asia but the demand for resources internationally mm. you know this is where there is the huge demand for the illegal wildlife trade and where animals do get traded through the these these massive seaports in in China and Singapore and Indonesia. Uh, so it's just like a, a really central point for, for where all this is going down, essentially. It's, it's the front lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, 
you just have to see some of the animals that we've received in rescue centers over the years from pangolins to birds from across the Indonesian archipelago, uh, you know, bears from bear bile farms. Like there's just a huge demand for animals right across the spectrum. And, mm. and that onus is then left on a lot of the time over, over stretched government departments, forestry departments, uh, and then in private and government run NGO, uh, sorry, I should say privately and government run uh, rescue centers and sanctuaries across Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, it seems like there's a, it's such an interesting sort of melting pot of, of change. And at the same time, like having these like often like historical issues uh, surrounding animal welfare that are uh, sort of making it, yeah, that, that sort of front line. And, and the, it seems like the ability to change a lot of that is, is really like rising and becoming uh, you know, more prominent. Like I was just talking to uh, Sarah from uh, Asia. Sorry, Animals for Asia. That's that's right. Is that right? I'm Animals for oh, Asia. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And she's <laughs> Animals, Animals Asia. Asia. Sarah Van Herpt. Yes, yes. I was talking to Sarah Van Herpt from Animals, Animals, Asia. Animals Asia. Yes. See, this that's is this is <laughs> tremendously confusing. Uh, and Don't worry, Dave, Dave has said multiple times, he's like, why did we call it? We've got to keep the name, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. Um, and yeah, it was it was so interesting seeing, uh, like hearing about the the bare bile farming issues that, that they're sort of really combating, but also like how much progress has been made in that industry. Like I was sort of aware of the industry, but I was I was unaware of how of how small the industry now is comparatively, like, especially in, in Vietnam, uh, where specifically she was based. It was, it was really interesting to see that, that progress on such a prominent issue there. And that's it. Like, I think that a lot of people think that Asia is this far flung place where no one cares about things, but there's a lot of people on the ground Mm -hmm. working. And I don't just mean foreigners and expats coming in. There's a, there's a conscious and social movement in many of these countries that want to make change, that want to protect the environment, that want to protect animals. It, it's it's growing from within the country, which I think is really important to also recognize mm-hmm. that that a lot of the action is coming from people. And and governments are noticing too, there are, you know, civil societies asking their governments to do more. You look at the back of COVID-19 with, with animal trade being implicated in that. You know, Vietnam instantly said, right, we've got to cut out the wildlife trade. And it's, you know, it's policy and it's, it's politics and it doesn't move often fast, but Things are changing across the region. People are paying attention, and they're they're wanting. They're all wanting a better future for animals and and you know for people. If it is at the end of the day, a selfish reason as well. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And it seems, uh, you know, at least uh, statistics wise, like the like Asia as as a whole, like is developing so so quickly, and like the you know. There's there's few other places in the world that like the GDPs of countries are are doubling every sort of ten years. Like, I mean, I'm not a, exactly. a economist or anything, but like it, it's it's crazy the the sort of growth uh, metrics that are coming out of Asia. So I think uh, a lot of these um, sort of developments are are you know as a result of that you know in a lot of these places. But um, very much so. Yeah, and the same the demand for that, the visibility of that, the mm-hmm. status symbol of these things. Uh, th- that demand has also cre- increased as, I guess, that available income has increased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Increased. I mean, there's a lot of factors that play into it. And yeah. It's not just, you know, one reason, of course, but it certainly is a contributing factor to why there's even more, um, you know, animal trade happening, yeah. more deforestation, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
So, you know, um, you said you, you sort of started working in sanctuaries, like on the ground, and now you're a little bit more like have an overhead view of a lot of different sanctuaries. Was, was there a specific sort of experience or, or, you know, animal or, or something like that, that really like you, where you made the switch from wanting to be a zookeeper uh, like actually sort of hands-on working with the animals every day to what you're, what you're doing now. So I think that like the, the move when I was 19, that big realization, like this is, this is where I want to be. I want to be living in Asia. I want to be helping animals sort of on that front lines was the big driver behind it. And then moving into my position now, it just seemed like I could take the knowledge and the, the network that I've developed over so many years and actually start to put it to some, to put it some to some good mm -hmm. uh, the original task of the job of the job description which was originally only you know a year was to develop a uh, you know a mapping exercise of all the sanctuaries and rescue centers across asia that we could be aware of and the issues that they're facing essentially just to get that overview and i was just in a really good position with a really good understanding to take on that position and then from there it's it's continued to grow into the position we have we have now um, and so I guess my position now is, you know, post that mapping exercise where we've sort of identified sanctuaries and rescue centers right across Asia. And to define it, it's not just, um, you know, the large traditional sanctuaries you might think of, like where Cerebin Head works, but we're mm -hmm. starting to discover a whole range of smaller centers that may be just one person backyard operations, which, you know, may be reminiscent of, of wildlife rehab in Canada or Australia. So there's a lot of people wanting to do the right things, but mm -hmm. they're not necessarily involved in that larger network. And so they're looking also out to reach out to go, oh, we've found something. How can, you know, where do we get the help from? Um, you know, an example just in the last couple of weeks, you know, I think one of the most important parts of this role is, you know, is being that central point of contact. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, to make people feel involved. Um, right. You know, it, some of these smaller centers don't know what's available to them. And like in just the past week, we've had some, you know, someone, in Japan. So Japan has very little, from my understanding, very little exotic wild animal laws. So you can't import anything into the country. But from my understanding with our partners and the organization that work there, once it's there, it's not really protected under any law. Mm. And so people get these pets, you know, they see it on social media and go, I want a marmoset or I want a squirrel monkey or I want a macaw. And then they suddenly get it and realize that these things, I don't want to say an animal's a nightmare, but these things are a nightmare to look mm. after when you don't have the skills. And so we've had people just in the last week contact us and go like, we've just been dumped with a marmoset. You know, you know, what do we do? At minimum, we know that, you know, they have an awareness that, you know, that she also has a squirrel monkey and they know that there's a simian virus that squirrel monkeys mm. carry and, and that can, you know, really harm marmosets very quickly. So she's like, I need to develop proper protocols in this. Am I doing the right thing? And so maybe it's not our place to go, okay, we know everything, but we can go, okay, I know, you know, and that's that central point of contact. Mm. I know keepers in Australia who work with marmosets. You know, we know people who work on, you know, or on the board of a neocal primate organization in South America. So we can make those connections for people where they may have never made those connections before, but also for those smaller centers that may be on the outside of, of those larger, more well-developed networks that rely on peer-to-peer -peer stuff. We can act as that middle ground, but also help steer people to where they need to go. But and I think that's the, the, the great thing is being that central point for mm. people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and even to expand on that, I think that's one of um, one of the biggest roles we have is is that center point of contact. You know, 
sharing resources like uh, Sarah, Sarah Bonza Blake from Wild Welfare, mm. um, who you know, and I think you've interviewed before mm. on the podcast. Um, you know, they're a fantastic e-learning program. You know, they just got that translated into Bahasa Indonesian. Mm. Most Indonesian rescue centers didn't know that that resource existed. And so as soon as, you know, their minds were blown going, wow, this is something we've looked for for a long time. We are exceptionally busy. We don't necessarily have the time to develop all these programs ourselves, especially on that really, you know, technical basis side of things. So to have those resources at hand, are, you know, are fantastic. But, you know, mm -hmm. we're also, you know, we get so many just random emails and people that wouldn't know where else to turn. And whilst, you know, like that marmoset example, you know, some people don't know that there are EASA guidelines for color triggers. So as simple as just right. going, do you know this exists, this resource exists? You know, we had people in Myanmar uh, the other day saying all the temples are being overrun with snakes that, that people are dropping off there for, oh. for whatever reason. And so it's like, where, where do we go for, for, for snake? You know, how do we get you know, better welfare for snakes and make sure they have proper release protocols? So like, well, do you know the Species Survival Commission? has you know specialist groups and species specialist groups that you can turn to for this sort of advice or we can sort of steer people in the right way you know yesterday i was on a call with a couple a couple of people from china and they're aware of a hundred rescue centers some are government licensed some are unlicensed etc but they all want to help you know raise their standards where do mm. they even start to look for resources in mandarin etc but we know of other people in china who are doing similar programs on the ground and so to act as that facilitator you know is something that that it seems a bit wishy-washy, as I've heard it the you know being called the other day, but it does have a role when people just really don't yeah. know where to turn to for help, mm -hmm. um, and to and just make those connections and those introductions to people, and then moving on from that, if we notice, and this is right across AFA as a whole, if we start to understand that there is a, a knowledge gap, so I mean we never want to repeat anything that's being done, but if there's a knowledge gap. Uh, that we recognize, we want to try and help fill that in, in, a, in, you know, the best way possible. So for instance, at the moment, talking to um, uh, rescue centers across Indonesia, they'd like to create like a shared voice for, for their, their sector. Um, so, you know, we can try and help facilitate and go, well, here's some other examples um, of networks that have been set up elsewhere in the world, say for instance, Vietnam, or, you know, we can host those meetings and arrange those talks so that people can start to, um, uh, develop those ideas and take that onus of everyone else mm. trying to get those meetings together off one rescue center who, you know, you don't know what they're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's absolutely been, uh, like what I've noticed and just, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I do for wild enrichment is just like, it's, you know, whether or not you work at a, at a large zoo or a very, very small sanctuary, it's, it's hard to sort of, uh, you know, be keeping your sort of eyes fixed on the horizon enough because you're so exactly. worried about like your sort of day to day and just like your day to day tasks, your your husbandry, your all like all this stuff that you have to do on the on the daily, and it's 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 hard to sort of build the time to be thinking about the future and and collaboration and 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 learning and advancing your programs. Like those those things are really hard to sort of do, and I'm sure there's it, it's it's very it's even more challenging for some of these smaller sanctuaries, uh, you know that that are maybe working with smaller smaller budgets and smaller staff resources. Yeah. All those things make it infinitely harder, I'm sure. Exactly, and I mean you look at any other major rescue center that you could name in Southeast Asia or in in Asia whole. It also, you know, most of them weren't started by experts with master's degrees mm. or doctorates in animal rescue you know there are certainly those that, that are out there but many of them started with very dedicated passionate people 
who were like, this is an issue that we want to help out on. And so they started off somewhere just like all these other smaller organizations are doing. We just want to you know, try and make that ride a little bit easier for them. Of course, like mm -hmm. there is a, a responsibility you have to play. Like not everyone is capable of caring and looking after wildlife and not yeah. everyone should just be running around opening a rescue center. But, you know, making sure there is a voice there to go, well, this, you know, it's a difficult task. This is the examples that you see around elsewhere. But if you're really dedicated to it and you've got the right reasoning behind it, like there is always a need for this. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, and yeah, that's, that's typically the, pro it's, it's, uh, it's never the problem where there's not enough animals. That's always the problem that there's not enough sanctuaries and there's not enough resources to, to sort of take them in. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hugely, hugely beneficial. Uh, now that you sort of get to work with a lot of different sanctuaries and, and, and see some of these issues that they're, they're facing, is there something that like, you weren't sort of expecting to see like is there an issue or like a some sort of challenge that a lot of these rescues are, are facing that you were surprised by or or one that that you sort of see most often sadly sadly no i don't think anything shocked me which is which is, you know sad i mean a mm -hmm. lot of the discussions i have people are telling you know, some really horrible stories of being under-resourced or they've just got this huge confiscation, you know, what do we do with this animal? Mm. We well, we can't expatriate this animal here. So I don't, I, sadly, I don't think I was really affected by any, not, no, take that back. I don't think I was shocked by anything. I think, I think these stories are very well known. Um, there's, there's challenges and struggles that people are having on the ground with, with wildlife. Yeah. I wasn't a very good answer. <laughs> that wasn't a very good answer. <laughs> No, it was, it was good. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, like it's, it's one of those, one of those things that you're sort of, uh, I, I think it's, it's more of like a, a matter of like scale of, of these, some of these issues that, uh, you know, and like everywhere that deals with animals, like there's, there's sort of like common issues, but then when you're smaller and you're these issues, like they compound and you, and you feel them sort of so much, Absolutely. so much more and, 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 yeah, they can really have a have a pretty pronounced pronounced effect, but yeah, yeah. Plus, I mean, every single rescue center is in and sanctuary is in a is in a different place. Like, uh, mm. not just country wise. I mean, uh, what they can actually do, what they're aiming to do on the ground, but also, yeah, thinking thinking politically. Like, the situations are different across every single country. Policy is completely different. There's different spaces of rescue centers, for instance. Like, for instance, the Thai government. Uh, runs their own sanctuary and rescue uh, center network of, I think, about 20, 29 centers through mm. the Department of National Parks, where in somewhere like Indonesia, it's, it's, it's government and private partnerships. So there's lots of different models also right across across the region um, of, of, of sanctuaries and rescue centers. I've, what I find very interesting about your position and and mm. like what what you're doing at, at AFA is is that sort of like stakeholder relations mm. uh, role because typically you know I, like a lot of the of a lot of the um, places that I that I work with and 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 people that I talk to a lot of like welfare issues that they're facing are typically like a lot of them are, are team based and communication based and like all of these things like really compound a lot of these, these issues. I, I would love to hear sort of, um, 
like your take on on collaboration and managing teams and, and stuff like that and ha- like if you have advice for people because I think that's somewhere that that you know companies struggle with internally and and smaller places struggle with like externally as well so I'd love to hear sort of your take on that so I guess in 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 our role now right across AFA is we so it's easier said than done but we sort of take that apolitical or neutral sort of facilitator role mm-hmm. in trying to help organizations with collective challenges and i mean as you pointed out everyone's going to have different opinions whether it be on your thoughts on zoos or how program x is you know help this animal or what's the best way to implement it at the end of the day like what we try and recognize as afa is like everyone's voice is valid like everyone has different experiences everyone has different perspectives maybe some views are different a bit left of field or whatever but it's still better that we have you sitting at the table uh talking about this it's still better that we get your perspective about things so other people can understand your perspective back as well and so to try to keep that down i think i mean at the end of the day we all want to you know get to the top of the mountain we want to get to moksha nirvana enlightenment which is a better tomorrow and a better future for Mm. animals but the path and the way we get there you know the path we lead up that mountain is going to be different based on everyone's different opinions so just bringing people together and just listening and trying to act as that neutral facilitator uh it can help it can help in many cases you know and to go well just talk it out basically um yeah yeah and and Um, something that i've found and i'm sure like you know you sort of were touching on it there is like uh coming to coming to the table whatever that means whether it's virtual mm -hmm. or physical or whatever but uh with that sort of like positive intent like and, and exactly. understanding everybody is there with positive intent for the most part, usually in these situations, like everybody, um, you know, even if they have a different opinion or it seems like they're working against you, uh, like in a lot of these discussions and, and, and scenarios, like people are there for the for the animals, even though like it might yeah. not seem that way, like from your perspective, like that that is such a useful like thought exercise to go through before doing a sort of meeting meeting like that. And I think that's just, I think that's something not just in meetings and stakeholder mm-hmm. engagement or anything like that. I think it's just a way that you need to carry on mm-hmm. your life in general. It's just like to have a bit of perspective, you know, you know, yes, somebody could just be a, a dick at the end yeah, of the day. They could yeah. just be a dick. But you also don't know what's happening. You don't know whether their organization's really struggling. You mm-hmm. don't know whether they've got someone sick at home. You don't know, you know, whatever reason. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't you know, have that perspective that you don't know what someone else is going through and just, you know, like, what's the point of me taking on that tension and taking on that, you know, whatever else someone else has got on, we can just be friendly and open and talk to it, talk mm-hmm. to them. Um, I was, I was going to ask you as well, like, since you sort of come from this, uh, like zoo, like being so interested in zoos and, and, and stuff like that. And, and, uh, you know, being interested in that sphere and then coming to like the sort of sanctuary, uh, and, and this sort of front line of, of what you're working with now, like what are the sort of unique considerations for sanctuaries, uh, when it compares to like zoo, a zoo setting or, or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I guess the most obvious one that everyone would straight jump to is like resources, but I think we've got to think about like resources and constraints and while most of it probably comes down to stuff financially, um, you know, it all really comes down to financial at the end of the day. I think it's just the awareness that they're just completely different situations. You know, you know, it could be resources in terms of material you'll have access to, 
the the level of skill and training people in your organization have, the variety of species you have. It could also be government restraints in your activities. For instance, in some countries, euthanasia and desexing is not allowed of, of endangered species. Mm. And so that's a hurdle that you have to jump over when you're you know making welfare considerations. And that is very different to what a, a normal mm-hmm. you know, global morph zoo may may yeah. consider. Um, I think another really simple one is, is you know, maybe I mean I've never worked in the zoos, but from what friends say, like in, in comparing is uh you know, sort of like your keeper to animal ratio. Mm. In a zoo, I, I I get I gather you have fewer animals under each person's care or you have multiple people caring for animals in a team mm-hmm. you know some some sanctuaries and rescue centers i've worked at have been caring for hundreds of animals with mm-hmm. a team of you know just a couple of keepers so you know in a, in, your, in a single day one keeper may be looking after multiple different species mm-hmm. and you know they're the one doing all the cleaning all the feeding and they have to do you know if they get time observations of each and every one of those individuals who have probably just come from a really horrible situation mm-hmm. uh, and we need to you know keep on top of what's happening with them um so i think that can be you know a really big uh, uh challenge mm-hmm. um i think another really big difference which it may be tough to say but you know you might need to i don't i don't like saying it this way but you might need to compromise on welfare mm-hmm. i mean in most zoos compromising on welfare would be no and you'd have a lot of keepers going this is you know you know this is what we want for our animals yeah and so to say that rescue centers don't want that as well but i think you you know you strive for maximum welfare and try and deliver that but mm-hmm. when you receive you know 165 pangolins in one night mm-hmm. and you don't have 165 pangolins worth of termites and eggs their welfare is going to be compromised yeah. or, and you know it's going to be challenging to get to that or you get 200 birds you know with an hour's notice mm-hmm. uh, you know and and one night we got like 200 birds and 60 peacocks and a variety of other animals that we got one hour's notice for. Yeah. You, you know, you think that those animals are better off now they're with you, but they're still like, it's a really challenging situation to care mm-hmm. for all those animals. Yeah, they'll have veterinary care, they'll have, you know, the right food and stuff, but where do you, you know, how do you house appropriately all these animals in what conditions that you think like, you know, you might want to try and meet the standard everywhere else. And mm-hmm. you don't often have time to prep for this. You have, you know, I think a lot of rescue centers have, you know, standard, unless you're a species specific rescue center, a lot of rescue centers have enclosures that can hold multiple types of animals Mm -hmm. uh, so that you, you are prepared for whatever is, you know, coming into your rescue center. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and on that, I mean, it's also, I mean, zoos work in a way where, I mean, zoos also receive rehabilitation cases. I know in Australia, there's a lot of call outs for, for marine rescues and things like Mm -hmm. that. They have, you know, really big responses for, um, you know, the bushfires that recently went through. Um, but, you know, being prepared to receive any type of animal at any time. I mean, just in my experience, you know, just you walking around during the day and then someone calls you up and someone's got a macaque in a handbag or someone's got a mm. macaque on a dog leash or someone has a macaque in the barrel of a washing machine mm. uh, or bin on the back of a truck or monks bringing civets and snakes. Mm. Or one day we had a bear cub. Uh, come with uh, you come with a motorcycle gang a sun bear cub oh, come wow. with a motorcycle gang with their leather and patches so sort of just being like ready for any sort of situation that mm-hmm. comes is maybe a little bit different to where zoos may have that opportunity to prepare a bit more but mm-hmm. again in a very changing world I know particularly in australian zoos they're playing a massive role yeah in you know that rehabilitation and rescue function now for for natural disasters and things mm-hmm. um but yeah and of course you know you struggle on on 
like anywhere else with budgets and, and, and financial restraints. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's, I think that's definitely one of the hardest parts of, of, you know, having animals in human care is, is the, yeah. is that part particularly with, um, sometimes like having to compromise on, on welfare sometimes in, 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 cause like zoos are, aren't, just there to house animals like there's there's you know the education side of things there's a conservation side of things there's we need to get people in to pay and to to house the animals better and it's and there's always certain levels of of compromise that that can go into that you know and and in particular like even in conservation programs like how you can house the animals like the money for the conservation programs like all those things are are often result in you know sometimes like the the welfare of the animal does get compromised a little bit and there and there's you know guidelines around mm-hmm. all those things but it, it's definitely a hard thing to to reconcile um yeah, and really. to 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 think about and and to to decide what compromises you you have to make versus what compromises need to need to change like all those things it's it's a very very complex uh, environment you know yeah, absolutely. And for centuries and rescue centers, that often happens at a moment's notice. Yeah. Like it's it's really sometimes intense when you get a call from a government agent or you, people rock up at the gate, you're making very quick decisions about the animal that's going to affect them for weeks. So, you know, whether you you feel guilted into accepting this animal, you not guilted, I shouldn't say it like it. Yeah. You, you, you know, you take in this animal and you want to take the best care of it, but, and you know, it's probably going to be better off than you than, than elsewhere, but it's mm-hmm. still not the best welfare situation put in you're making those decisions from the moment that you take that animal yeah um you know you still may be impacting its welfare it's just a little bit better off slightly Mm -hmm. yeah and 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 like often you know like as you were saying like you you have to you don't get a lot of time to prepare for animals and and some of those animals are so incredibly hard to keep in human care that like, mm-hmm. you know, like zoos that are like large, well-funded zoos, like some animals are really, really hard to keep in, in human care successfully. And, and when you have uh, potentially like smaller budgets and less resources, it becomes even, even harder, you know, especially bears and stuff like that. Like they're very, very hard to, to keep in human care successfully, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and you don't win every case, you don't win them all. And, you know, you yeah. try with, and I don't want to say that, you know, I think everyone, what budget they have got goes to the animals Mm -hmm. and they try to do their best. And, you know, that's the number one core of everyone is to try and get the best for the animals. So, yeah, it's not necessarily the animals are suffering from, or well, not, how do I put it, not being most cared for because of, you know, budget concerns. That's where it's going. But then it's all the other supporting things that go along that you need to be, that you need to support your mission as a whole. So making sure your staff are well paid, making sure that you have, Mm -hmm. Uh, staff training opportunities, etc., making sure that your own organisation has its financial sustainability and you know plans in place. You know these are all luxuries of stuff to think about when you've got animals just coming constantly mm-hmm. at you. Well, and and especially and I mean, these, these arguments whether you should keep taking animals, yeah, and you know what the role of governments and stuff here is. But mm-hmm. for most people on the ground, it's like, well, where's that animal going to end up at the end of the day? Yeah, and yeah. So you those tough decisions. Yeah, and 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 you know like 
as we were saying earlier, like not all animals are, are created equal as far as like the care that they need and, 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 and like the resources that they, they take up. And like, you know, if you have a couple of animals that are, that are those really challenging animals to keep, like that takes away from the other animals that are also in that sanctuary. And like, it's not just a, you know, one animal equals one unit of work kind of thing. It, it, it doesn't work out like that. And, and, you know, it's, yeah, that's a very challenging thing to, to work with. And going back to what what we're talking about before about networking and and um, creating you know working environments for people that's all over eleven million. Going back to what you said about creating networks is you know for instance Vietnam's just gone through that process of creating a rescue center network. They're very new mm. to that that trying to get that through now, but that's so that they can start to coordinate between all of them. You know, not necessarily who's got the resources to care for what. But who's got the best experience to care with this particular yeah. animal? So again, collaboration like that is going to drastically improve the outcomes for those animals to either get them back to the wild or get them to to proper sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and and that's that's the way forward. Like, and that's the model that that a lot of the yeah. times like is used by things like uh, species survival programs in in uh, exactly. in you know North America and stuff with AZA. Like, it's it's like where where do these animals what what's best for for this specific animal and and where should they go? to sort of not just survive, but, but really like thrive. So that's, that's a, that's for sure. The, the model, the way, the way forward, um, this being the, the sort of wild enrichment podcast, I would be uh, remiss if we didn't touch on enrichment here. Um, of course. cause that's one of the things, uh, you know, that I spend most of my time, like when I'm helping, uh, organizations, like it's always our enrichment budget is, you know, small and our demand for enrichment is is very large (laughs) so reconciling that and like do you have advice for institutions and and people looking to deliver effective enrichment programs but having those sort of resource constraints because you've worked in and worked with a, a number of facilities that i'm sure fall into that to that box so yeah yeah 100 percent like and i've yeah, I think that's a challenge of everyone wanting mm-hmm. to do the best like he's can. And it's a challenge for everyone around the world. I know friends yeah. from zoos say the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess from my experience, it is it is doing what you can and being resourceful with what you got, which seems like the most obvious thing to say. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, so I often took the philosophy, which may be a little bit backwards and not up to, you know, you know maybe not the best way to do things. But it was more like I took a... You know, we're, we're working with animals that were like practically sometimes living on concrete, mm-hmm. maybe potentially living alone, not in the best situations, always trying to constantly improve, improve their, their, their enrichment and their welfare. But some of it was just like, can we fill in more of the animal's time with something else? So instead of its food just being dropped in front of it, can we present it a little bit differently? And I know this seems really completely obvious, but some of these things just are the best ways to get, you know, what am I trying to say? Some of these are just the, <laughs> I was on a roll and I forgot it. Some of the simplest things are yeah. just the, sorry, let's start again. Some of the simplest things are just the, uh, the most effective. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, when I, you know, in, in working what you got, which is also the constraints that you have, and it's not necessarily constraints like um, funding and resources, but we also had constraints of like, you know, our keepers were exceptionally busy. So, they might not have done enrichment every single day with those animals. So how can we make small changes in their routines Mm. that don't affect 
their day too much. And you know, some of these people have been working with the same animals for, for 20 years, for instance. So how do we mm. how do we work around their schedules as well? And so I managed to implement um, really simple, like two week enrichment budgets, because we you know we relied on volunteers a lot. Sorry, two week enrichment schedules mm. uh, in Laos and Indonesia, and trying to work around with all those different restrictions. You know, in some cases, sort of like I was saying, there was you know there might not be a shift cage to move animals into, so you need to whatever you threw in couldn't be retrieved. Mm. Um, as you know, as I said, all concrete enclosures. So. What can you what can you build the staff capacities to assist alongside their other duties? Um, yeah, sorry, I got a little sidetracked. No, that's um, all right. Hopefully, you can get that through. But yeah, but both in, in both those centres, we eventually got to covering you know between 120 and 200 animals mm. on a daily basis, either once or twice daily. And it was just through those really, you know, trying to work with and around keepers, but then also utilising the volunteers we've got. Um, so obviously, volunteers couldn't go and. Uh, um, uh, you know, shift dangerous animals, etc. But having carabiners and clipping things to the outside of cages mm -hmm. in you know different places could be really enriching for for a primate. You know, they've got to hang on and use different muscles and stuff to try and access whatever resources in there. Mm -hmm. So you're know, really working with what you've got. You know, a lot of the time was simple, like uh, you know, taking the animals' food and putting it in a pile of leaves. Yeah, you know, and putting it with dog food. They keep, they go through really renewable resources. We use bamboo for everything. So, you know, tracking, you know, when we had animals that lived in a, it was a quarantine building, even though animals weren't in quarantine, um, you know, we just were at capacity essentially. So just cutting off massive, massive lengths of bamboo mm -hmm. and putting it in there would keep them occupied for hours, mm -hmm. you know, stripping the bamboo, eating it, looking for the bugs on it, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so it's just basically using what we had around. Further on, you know, you know, when an animal is, you know, in a cage, we use cage, like, you know, it doesn't sound like the best term, but when it's in there, ensuring you know something in there is dynamic and something's movable so the animals can have something to interact with really simple things like visual barriers are really underestimated so that animals can get away from from other animals um having platforms in the corners mm. so that we can have you know the animals can get a different view from what's happening outside their outside their enclosures so mm. it all seems really obvious and in terms of advice it's just perseverance and to mm. try and uh uh, use what's available to you yeah um because, you know there there's often not a lot around and not a lot of budget and a lot of constraints on you so yeah mm -hmm. use what you can i think it's important as well to uh think about like you know like using what you can and 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 using what's available yeah. to you but actually understanding what's available to you because there's like uh I, i've worked yeah. with with lots of facilities on facilitating collaboration outside of the organization to bring yep. those enrichment items in. Cause like, you know, I, I've worked with, with places that uh, have done like collaboration with like a hydro company to get like big wooden spools yep. and like poles and, and worked with uh, like an old uh, like gym to get some like punching bags and, and worked with uh, exactly. uh, PVC um, or like plastics companies to get like barrels and, and on all those things, like understanding yep. what's in your community because like animal welfare is, is like very universal. And, and like, once people see like, they're very willing to donate their resources to this cause, if they see like the direct benefit and, and um, you know, and, and sort of inviting that collaboration, I think is so important for, for anywhere that has bu those budget constraints, because there are people out there that are wanting to help and they just don't know that the barrels they, they manufacture and, and, 
maybe fill with chemicals and stuff like that. Like one of those barrels can, can keep a bear or, you know, like lots of different animals yep. active for a very, very long time. So thinking about those things. I mean, yeah. We were the same. Like I know that, you know, before I ever traveled out, I was back on the holidays and stuff, you'd be emailing organizations in Australia at home. Like, and so we used to get like, a. Uh, the boomer balls and stuff, you know, mm. ex-production mm -hmm. boomer balls donated to us. They might break in a couple of weeks, but, you know, at least these animals had them for something mm -hmm. or trying to reach out from stuff at home. There was a great organization uh, in Malaysia called Ape Malaysia, and they used to work with the fire departments in Borneo yeah. to take all the all the fire hose. Mm -hmm. Sadly, and you know, they then used to get uh, uh, the Air Asia team, like people who work for Air Asia, to fly around rescue centers in Asia, take all these fire hose with them. And then use it mm. as a team building exercise. Oh, yeah. Sadly, that's that's stopped since COVID. But you know that really helped a lot of rescue centers mm -hmm. across multiple countries. And even down to as simple as I remember, there was a supermarket on the way out of Vientiane back to the rescue center, and um, they would always make fresh juice and have all the peels and everything just left in bags. And they just sit it there for us because it was like we could make ice treats for the animals out of this, mm -hmm. but just by using all the peels and stuff. So you're absolutely right in you know just whatever resources are available to you and. And remarkably, even with a you know, ten or twenty dollars, you can get some really simple stuff. We used to love spending hours in the local hardware stores. Mm -hmm. with, you know, you know what chain can we buy, or what carabiners can we buy, or what pipes can we buy to make this just with with twenty dollars. So it doesn't have to be these massive, huge, just over-engineered items. And sadly, they may not be necessarily necessarily cognitively stimulating mm -hmm. for these animals. Yeah. But it's taking up time in their budget. It's giving them something to do where they may have not had something had something before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that's uh, you know that that challenge about like sort of thinking thinking big while you should be thinking like what's the easiest way I can get this animal to perform this natural behavior or like what's the simplest what's the simplest design of this enrichment that like is functional like those things are are so important to be to be thinking about because you know that that happens to to zookeepers all around the world is like they have this grand plan and and this grand idea for this enrichment item that's that's never going to get built because it's too complex you know whereas something yep so much simpler and and that doesn't require half the resources like what is going to do the same thing like that thing the enrichment that actually gets to the animal is always going to be better than the enrichment that's stuck in your head because it's too it's too complex so 100 yeah. percent. and at the end of that you're just getting it out for those animals mm -hmm. you know since they need something and you know everything is novel to them at the end of the day mm -hmm. uh for the most part so yeah yeah yep. that's uh yeah super super important advice um yeah, I wanted to touch on something else as well. Like yeah. you asked another question before about um, your stakeholder engagement and building mm -hmm. rapport and stuff. Um, but I had some funny anecdotes I thought I'd, I might yeah. share about like, because yeah. you went on to ask about, uh, you know, in rescue centers and stuff, you know, mm -hmm. how we got things done. And so it's a thing I wouldn't mind touching on. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, um, sorry. So when you were talking about, uh, you know, the importance of engagement and talking to people, you know, that's the number one thing we can do to improve animal welfare in sanctuaries and rescue centers. And, and that's working with the staff that you've got. Um, you know, they may, a lot of people have this idea that, you know, people working in rescue centers, you know, they're not skilled, they're not educated. And yet for the most part, they do maybe come from, from an area around the rescue center. But I guarantee you a hell of a lot of them know a lot more about the animals that you're working mm. with than you ever would. You know, I remember we had this one woman uh, who, you know, Knew, knew she looked after like 200 spotted pigeons or something and she knew every one of them individually. So, you know, it was as silly as like, 
if one pit, one spotted dove walks two steps left instead of three steps right at nine o'clock in the morning, mm. she catches up and bring it to the vet hospital. But she knew something was wrong with that animal. And yeah. typically, yeah, you know, she might say something was silly because she couldn't explain it was off, but it was there. So people really, really understand. But it, it can be challenging. People who've worked in, you know, trying to implement or change programs, implementing enrichment with people. People are often skeptical because it's like, I'm already busy enough trying to care for my animals. How can we do it? And so I think a lot of it is, you know, again, like you've mentioned, is, is having good communication and really mm. good rapport with people. Uh, and I mean, I've been guilty of not having enough in the past, you know, you know, just wanting to get something done and jumping the gun a little bit. But it's really about a way of, you know, finding a way to work with people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might be like, okay, it, it's, you know, as silly as it is. And I mean, there's a lot of cross-cultural barriers and stuff, you know, in, you know, my position, in, you know, to get something implemented. But as simple as like, here's, here's what we want to achieve. What do you think about it? How's that going to impact your work? And, and you know, asking mm -hmm. everyone's opinion. And then you might have to compromise again, but step by step, you're going to get through there. And I think an even bigger one is, you know, to, to you know, start to, you know, get in with local customs. And for me, yeah. it was like having a coffee and a cigarette every morning with the team. We wouldn't talk about work, mm -hmm. but, you know, they can see you, you're sitting there, you're, you're, you're just sitting with them for 20 minutes, talking about their families, talking about anything else. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's just a sense of building camaraderie and stuff because yeah. a lot of people just like, we need to do this now, get along with it. In other places, it's also like, you know, getting absolutely blind drunk and singing karaoke. <laughs> but again, that's that's the way that people want to build camaraderie. Yeah. You know, you, it, for a lot of people, it's not just about work. You know, this is their local community. This is where they are. This is where they live 24 seven. This is, mm -hmm. a, you know, this is a big part of their life that they're committed to. So finding the ways that you can, you, you know, work in there and, and be on site with them and, and help them, you know, mm. a lot of these people, you know, a lot of people in rescue centers also want to improve things for the animals and they want to, you know, have that rapport so that they can come and ask, you know, can we, can we try this? Can we do this? So it's also building the confidence of like, yeah, your ideas are super valid. Come and talk about anything with us. Yeah. That must be such an interesting and, and valuable resource that I feel like zoos almost completely miss out on is that like local knowledge of those specific species of animals that like people have grown yeah. up around and that are in their communities and like having that that knowledge must be just such a phenomenal resource because like you know we don't there's nobody with local knowledge that works with you know uh like tigers in 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 canada here like no one like very few people are working with um you know, the, the animals that they grew up around, uh, in, in zoos. And then like, that must be such a phenomenal resource that you can actually tap into, like with some of these local sanctuaries. Absolutely. I mean, particularly when you're talking about something like elephants, mm. like it's really, really switched on, you know, in Southern Vietnam, where there's still a lot of, I guess, traditional elephant keeping. So elephants will work through the day. So, they'll, you know, nowadays it might be tourist riding or something else. But it's still at night, they're, they're, they're chained up in the forests mm. and the people who've worked with them, you know, they've belonged with these families for 40, 50 years. They know, oh, I think she's got a bellyache today. I need to put her near this tree because we know that's going to help her for her bellyache. Or mm. we need to make sure she's down by the river so she can get that play and stuff. And they start to self-medicate. You know, they know what's mm. in the forest is going to help the animals. This has been passed down through generations, particularly for things like, for things like elephants where there is such a close relationship. And in the other way, like, you know, in the rescue centers where, where I worked, it was just people had been there, you know, for 20 years since the day it opened. Or, you mm. know, their fathers worked there or their mothers worked there. So just individual animals who may have been in sanctuary a long time, people know them as individuals and know when something's off and, uh, you know, really, really care for them. 
Mm -hmm. You know, it's like an extension of their family. Yeah, yeah. It makes me sort of like wonder uh, like ways of tapping into that sort of knowledge and, and building like collaboration with like those communities that are living with these animals and uh, like two sort of like zoos that are, that are, you know, keeping these animals in, in human care. Like that, that would be such an interesting, uh, uh, sort of bridge between two, uh, very different scenarios, you know? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I can't say it specifically whether it is an example or not, but certainly like zoos support a lot of programs. Yeah in asia you know especially mm -hmm. look at things like the songbird trade a lot of big zoos around the world support locally based rescue centers in indonesia and breeding centers and a lot of those animals that are there eventually you know, exported to to zoos as like insurance populations mm -hmm. etc so that whole knowledge was gained mm -hmm. from people that you know may have been in the forest may have been people who were previously you know targeting those birds you know mm -hmm. you hear a lot of stories of ex-poachers and stuff who are now working you know to stop the trade in songbirds mm -hmm. they have that you know they used to know what you know, trees these animals hang out at and what they'd eat and things. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly stuff there that, that local knowledge that can impart into, um, you know, other forms of animal management. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, yeah. So interesting. So, you know, now that you're sort of, uh, connected with all of these sanctuaries and, and organizations that are all sort of like in their communities, focusing on specific issues or general issues or, uh, many issues it, like, is there something that stands out in your mind as like a, uh, like a really, like, what is the biggest sort of like animal welfare challenge or, or issue or, you know, something that maybe people don't know about? Like what, what, is there something that sort of stands out to you as a really gigantic issue? Yeah, actually there, there is, I think, I think it's the biggest concern with animal welfare today is something that's, you know, staring us in the face. Uh, and that we're looking at daily and that's social media and animal cruelty mm. i think that just bypasses over people a hell of a lot and that's one of the biggest issues that we see as our work that affects all of our working groups whether it be macaques whether it be sanctuaries and rescue centers we're seeing the impacts of, of social media animal cruelty you know we're seeing this this online consistency you know you're, you're constantly seeing this feed of things coming through and it, whether it be you know endangered species or, or people showing off an exotic pet um, or what people maybe perceive as harmless interactions, uh, you're seeing different types of animal cruelty online. I mean, even now, like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of phenomenon, but there's a phenomenon completely about setting up fake animal rescues. So there's people who will take cats and kittens, uh, uh, you know, puppies and kittens, and put them in a hole with a giant python and then go and rescue them. Oh, wow. Or, you know, they'll, or they'll go and take, like, one we found the other day we found was someone was taking a freshwater turtle and gluing barnacles and bits of coral and stuff to its back, then releasing it in the ocean, so a saltwater environment, then going and catching it and then removing all that crap off its back as a release. It was very clearly a freshwater turtle. But, the, you know, there's this whole, whole online world that people don't even realise is happening. Um, I mean, you think of other obvious examples, like a lot of your issues would be aware of it, you know, like macaques dressed in clothing or tickling lorises. You know, when a macaque smiles or a loris puts its hands up, that's a defensive mechanism. Mm, like that's yeah. something that's not smiling, it's not happy. And whilst it doesn't seem as intentional cruelty within that video, think about it outside the context of maybe where that animal's come from or what's happening with that animal. So I think that's the biggest issue we see right across a lot of our groups and, and work at the moment. 
And so under AFA, we actually have a social media and animal cruelty group, which I'm, I'm going to plug because they're doing phenomenal work. Mm. But they're, they're overseeing collaboration of 20 NGOs who are working on this collectively. So they're, they're streamlining all their data collection of what their volunteers are finding online. They're streamlining all their uh, awareness to the general public about what you do if you see animal welfare or, or animal cruelty online. Um, uh, and they're also collectively addressing it with social media platforms so that they can change their policies to cover all these things. Um, but yeah, as I said, I'm going to give them a plug because I think this is really yeah, important. Please do. But um, yeah, the Smack team asks all social media users just to do five things if they do see animal cruelty content online. And number one is, is be aware, like some of the issues we've talked about, mm. be aware of what looks potentially like cruelty. Um, some of it's really obvious, like animals getting hurt, animals being traded, you know. Um, but there's also those things like, you know, primates in, in clothing and stuff, or, you know, animal rescuers that, that, that don't seemingly seem to be, you know, animal cruelty. Um, but I mean, there's also the other stuff, you know, there's to touch on that, to be aware of, you know, the full scope of issues. If you, mm. your followers are interested, there's recently a BBC expose on macaque torture online. Uh, which is completely sick. So warn yourself. There's some really mm. awful content out there, but there, you know, just to be aware that you know this stuff is spreading rapidly on the internet. Um, but then, pass number one of just being aware. Steps two, two, three, and four all at once is don't watch this content, don't engage with this content, and never mm. share this content, because even viewing these videos for a couple of seconds mm -hmm. uh, generates a view, and an angry face or a smiley face or sharing that generates engagement and it's all based on numbers and so it, and a lot of these posts actually monetize people go and do these fake rescue videos because people are like oh isn't that cute poor animal and they donate money or alternatively with views they get advertisements so they make money and they're reinforced mm. to get more to get more views and to, to to harm more animals so even if you jump on and comment oh my god look how stupid educate yourself and go to this link that doesn't actually help because it it reinforces the algorithms that there's interaction on it. So we say, don't don't watch it, don't engage, and don't share this stuff um, because it just it just reinforces these feedback loops. There's no way of telling what's good or bad feedback on any of these posts. Uh, and then finally, report it. There is a mechanism to report mm. all these things to Facebook and well to Meta, to TikTok, to, to X or Twitter or whatever it's called now, just to raise it. And what our social media animal cruelty group does is they do have a group where we've got about 50 volunteers under us ourselves as AFA looking at this content online, which is really challenging, but they're recording it all and showing the social media platforms in meetings every month. This is the content that's slipping through your, through your, mm. uh, through your policies and right. through your moderators and to try and strengthen what is actual animal cruelty. I mean, this is very small scale. I mean, you're talking about, you know, the yeah. masses of the internet mm -hmm. and each jurisdiction has completely different laws. But there is action happening. Again, the Social Media Animal Cruelty Group is commenting on a new UK bill, which is talking about online cruelty and a similar one that's going through New Zealand at the moment. But like Apple having to change the phones because the EU changed you know, the right mm. to repair, if one jurisdiction or a couple jurisdictions have really strong content uh, policies about what, what can be shown online or not, that means that they're going to have to act right across the policies. And I mean, you know, it's taken the avenue of like, children see a lot of this content. Yeah. So a lot of this is like averting harm from children in seeing animal cruelty content is taking a step back. So 
there is action happening on this, but it's yes, yeah, it's really important for people to be aware. And I think, I think uh, you know, out of everything I see, that's the issue that's really touching on so many different things. As I said, mm. illegal wildlife trade, illegal keeping of pets, just simply animal cruelty. You know, people eating animals live on these on 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 videos. Like, mm. there's just some crazy crap out there. But that's the one yeah. that I think across all our member organisations that everyone goes. That is something that we all you know are partially involved in. Wow. Yeah. I wasn't, wasn't expecting that to be honest. I, I, yeah, it's uh, I'm clearly not aware of that, that uh, like issue as, as like at scale. So that's, that's really, that's really interesting. Cause yeah, that's uh well, and absolutely horrible, but it's uh yeah, it's, that's very, very interesting. And going back to your point before is you know, where we talked about right at the start of the podcast, you know, some of the issues that are, that are happening in Asia as a whole is that, you know, how do you say some of the stuff you see online is generated within Asia mm-hmm. because that's where there is few laws. There's less, re- less enforcement if there are laws, et cetera, mm-hmm. but also just agencies aren't aware that this is an issue mm-hmm. that they should be, you know, attacking. And it's really hard to pinpoint where this is actually coming from. So this is why it's a focus for our organizations, because this is the region that a lot of this content is being generated in, but a lot of it's actually being consumed in Europe, in America, in mm-hmm. the global North countries. So it's a, it's a really wide affecting issue to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's uh, yeah, really interesting. And uh, I'll link uh, some of the stuff you just talked about that. So people can uh, educate themselves more on those issues. Is, is there any sort of uh, more plugs that you'd like uh, to, to talk about as far as like how people can actually like meaningfully get involved in these issues? Cause I, I find that's, that's typically, you know, people want to get involved, but it's, you know, it's very hard to know, like, how to actually, like, make a difference and, and impact. So I'd love to hear you uh, talk about that. Absolutely. I mean, so Asia for Animals is a network for NGOs. So you need to be essentially an NGO to join the network. Um, but what I like to say is I keep a little Rolodex for myself. Mm. And we keep a database of, of resources and who's who. And who may be able to help so if someone comes up again in the future and says we've got a marmoset we don't know anything about it being aware of people or being aware of resources in particular that we can share with people quickly is something that would be really great that if any of your listeners may have so husbandry guidelines or ideas for enrichment uh, that's a great way to be involved but also just reach out and say good day and stuff like you mm. know to to know what you're working on and the things that you're you never know where we could lead to different issues it's not just necessarily animal welfare but if you're an expert in podcast making Mm. or if you're an expert in you know social media Mm. and how to get your effective message across or how to market or you're in you're in fundraising you're in sustainable development like there's a whole range of other issues that affect sanctuaries and rescue centers than just the welfare of their animals so yeah if, if you know if you want to, you know, beyond that Rolodex that I keep in my head, or you have any um, any resource that you can share, yeah, please reach out, and I'm sure you will share my details online. Yeah, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to share with people. If you're aware of a training program that might be free, or you're aware of a scholarship program, or your zoo does uh, collaborations with organisations, you know, or they fund your zoo may have a fund um, or, or a grant available. We want to hear about all that as well. As I said, like our members have all different opinions of zoos or anything. I presume a lot of your listeners are zoos, mm. but us as the neutral one in the middle, like we, you know, 
I personally recognize the role that zoos play mm-hmm. in uh, in helping wildlife. Like, and there's so many zoo-sponsored programs in Asia, and without them, those programs wouldn't exist. So if your zoo has a grant or, or has an opportunity or something, let us know because we want to put that online. We just want to, as I said, we're that person in the middle. If we can be aware of something and pass it on to someone that's usable, uh, onto someone where it's usable, that would be that'd be fantastic. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. And yeah, as you said, I'll link um, everything in the show notes so people can uh, can check out uh, some of the amazing work uh, that you guys are doing and, uh, you know, pass on that information uh, if they have it. So that's uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for for coming on. This was awesome. Uh, we we I think we learned a lot of uh, like a really interesting perspective and, and it's fantastic to hear about the the great work uh, that you and 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 uh, afa are doing so uh thank you thank you so much for for making the time no worries well thank you so much for inviting us it was uh it's really great to just share the message and you know maybe what the on the ground situation is like for for a lot of sanctuaries and rescue centers so you know i feel privileged to be able to share some of their their stories and their challenges with you all Yeah, thank you. And uh, to everybody listening, uh, until next time, thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you.